This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. This is Katie Kiefer, the host of What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights on the Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the Heritage Radio Network community for 10 years, folks, 10 years. And even after all this time, I am constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. I am excited to bring you, uh, our listeners, the most important stories from the world of agriculture and food policy. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it, not for any other reason, literally. This year, Heritage is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Please join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to the heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now, and you can even show some love for my show by selecting What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights in the designation drop-down menu. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, and thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do it without you. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be talking about the recent congressional hearings on climate change and agriculture with Alyssa Charney, a senior policy specialist at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, where she leads the coalition's work on federal conservation programs and policies, climate change and agriculture, and the annual appropriations process. Alyssa holds an MS in agriculture and food policy and an MPH from Tufts University. Once again, I am totally in awe of your creds. I got to say, Alyssa. Oh my God, you got you know you you young people really make me feel bad. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I really appreciate your time on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I want you to tell people uh, a little bit about NSAC in case they're not familiar. Even though I've had guests. Uh, from your organization on the show, you know, there's always somebody who isn't aware. So National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, what do you guys do, actually? Sure. Thanks, Katie, and thanks so much for having me today. Um, NSAC, we are an alliance of more than 130 grassroots organizations all across the country working to advance the sustainability of agriculture, food systems, natural resources, and rural communities. Um, we do this work through our member organizations. They are the, the heart and soul of our work, helping us to understand what are the challenges and needs on the ground um, across the country. We take that feedback from them to, to set the policies that we work on um, when it comes to federal food and agriculture policy here in D.C. Um, our team is, is based here in Washington, D.C., and we work to represent our members' priorities advocating directly to, to Congress and to USDA. And we really work on all parts of food and agriculture policy, everything from conservation to research, local and regional food systems, food safety, crop insurance, beginning farmers, um, climate change, organic agriculture, you you name it. Um, so yeah, that, that is it. Yeah, that was, <laughs> you named it. That was very, <laughs> it's actually a really impressive list and it's a great organization. And uh, I'm just going to say up front, you guys have a fantastic newsletter or website that has, you know, all the latest news on all the different fronts that you work on. So if people are interested, it's, it's uh, NSAC.org, right? Uh, sustainableagriculture.net. Ah, 
Okay, thank you. I'm glad I asked you <laughs> but that. But I'm sure nothing a quit Google can't can't get you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, I, first, I want you to describe the two committee hearings described in the NSAC blog, and um, I, I noticed basically nowhere else, like other news organizations. Some of them picked up your your story, but um, I didn't see it reported in any mainstream newspaper. I googled it. Sure. Um, Yeah, just before Congress headed out for their uh, Memorial Day recess, they just got back to town today, but it was was a big week for climate change and agriculture. There were two different hearings in both chambers, um, one on the Senate side with the Senate Agriculture Committee that was focused on agriculture and climate change, and the other on the House side that was within the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and this was focused more broadly on um, resiliency and climate mm-hmm. change, but had a had a piece of it that was focused in on agriculture. Um, so on the Senate side, the Senate Agriculture Committee hearing, this was specifically on climate change adaptation and mitigation. Um, there was a bipartisan call for this hearing to take place. Uh, Chairman Pat Roberts, a Republican of Kansas, and Ranking Member Debbie Stabenow, a Democrat of Michigan, um, really together put on this hearing. Uh, Chairman Roberts actually months ago had been saying that he wanted this hearing to take place. So I think a, a really important sign that, you know, the folks on the Senate side who are driving agriculture and food policy recognize this is an issue um, that is front and center that really matters for farmers and ranchers across the country. Um, the witnesses that testified, there was a farmer, a rancher, a professor of animal science, as well as as former Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, who's now um, President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Um, so the, the conversation at that hearing really focused in on what are farmers doing already on the ground, what can they do to be part of the solution, both in terms of mitigation and adaptation. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the story that they told, especially the, the two producers, was very much that, like, these challenges are real. Um, we're up against a lot. Um, and we, we do want to be part of the solution when it comes to our management practices. Um, and it was also very clear that that they need support to be able to do that, right? There's a there's an interest, a desire, um, but a, a need for additional investment from Congress to to support these types of activities. Um, so on the Senate side, you know, definitely just the beginning of this conversation, but really, I think an important message to hear that there is bipartisan interest um, from the the members of the committee who attended and asked questions. There was a lot of discussion about. Uh, farm bill provisions that had been secured that um, both Democrats and Republicans worked on to improve soil health, to improve carbon sequestration, and again, questions from those members on what else do you all need to to make sure that you're going to be part of this solution. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was on the Senate side. Just a couple days later, the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis held a hearing titled Creating a Climate Resilient America. Um, This as I'm sure folks know, a committee was established this Congress um, to really dig in and figure out what are the innovative and effective solutions to to 
address the the climate crisis. Um, they have the power to to hold hearings, to really do fact finding trips. They cannot um, compel testimony or develop legislation. That being said, they they play a really important role in eventually making recommendations to the committees that do have jurisdiction over relevant issues, um, including agriculture. So as they continue their work, their investigation over the next um, year or so, what they find across issues, including agriculture, um, will ultimately help drive kind of what are what are the solutions that we seek out down the road. Um, so at this hearing, there were all different sectors represented. We heard about what are the effects on coastal communities, infrastructure, rural, rural areas, and agriculture. Um, Matt Russell was the, the witness who was really able to, to provide that insight on the agriculture side of things. He's a fifth-generation farmer from Iowa, um, and he spoke really well about the intersection between um, what's happening on the farm in terms of mitigation activities and also those that build more resilient systems. Um, right. So throughout this hearing, of course, you know, we, we did definitely still hear some of those partisan divides and back and forth, but I think that the the resiliency conversation was a really good place to start. There was kind of general agreement and understanding that, yes, these are very on, real on the ground fa- um, challenges that folks are up against. How do we build systems um, such that they are more resilient to, to withstand these challenges? Um, and how do we make sure that, that agriculture is part of that solution? Um, so again, I think that was a message that, that came through loud and clear from both hearings. Thank you. That was a great digest <laughs> of what was probably a few days worth of stuff. But remind me, I mean, like, how does an administration that has actively sort of thwarted, uh, you know, any discussion of climate change and cl- up to and including removing those words from, you know, certain legislatures? I'm thinking of like Scott, uh, what's his name down? Walker? No, not Scott Walker, but the the, the guy down in Florida. Um, you know, like, they don't believe in climate change. So how... How do they have discussions like this? I mean, is there, you mentioned that there was some bipartisan bickering and at the same time in the Senate committee, there was some bipartisan agreement. Um, but is that going to be enough to propel Congress as a whole to allocate uh, serious funding to help farmers deal with these uh, climate change issues? What do you think about that? Yeah, so luckily, you know, Congress is able, does act separately from the administration. Um, The administration meaning the president, the White House, all of the different agencies that are part of that administration. And yes, we have definitely seen concerning problematic challenges when it comes to um, work to to mitigate climate change um, coming out of the administration. So that being said, yes, the president will need would need to sign any legislation that Congress passes into law. Um, and thus, we do kind of see this standstill on many issues that the Democratic-controlled House wants to move forward. Um, yeah. But that being said, Congress is able to set its own agenda in terms of hearings and oversight. Um, So they are in control of that, of what they're talking about, what they're focusing in on. Of course, if they, if they do want to pass legislation and get it signed into law, they are going to need to um, (laughs) get that signed by the president. But I think that there is a general recognition and and we're pleased to see that, um, 
you know, what it looks like is happening now in Congress is at least conversation, recognizing the need, recognizing the urgency, um, and also providing that oversight and being able to shed light on where are there things going on with the administration that are concerning and problematic and counter to these goals. Um, so I think, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to be uh, next month we're able to to pass comprehensive climate legislation that gets at all of these goals and get it signed. Um, but I think really what, what we at NSAC see as the opportunity for the next year um, is to, to have these important conversations, to have members of Congress be part of that learning from the farmers and folks on the ground um, to set us up for you know, further policy solutions that that address the the goals and challenges that we're talking about. Yeah, right. So um, in the Farm Bill, I know that there was a lot of discussion about the Conservation Stewardship Program, um, which has been a very important tool for farmers. Um, and yet I, I was under the impression that it was going to be significantly uh, defunded. Where do you think that stands now, since a lot of the farmers that uh, testified in front of these two council or committees um, made it clear that CSP is a very valuable program for them. Yeah, it was it was really promising and exciting to to actually hear the number of times that CSP came up at the at the hearings, both from the the witnesses who were testifying as well as from members of Congress. Um, mm-hmm. The conservation stewardship program is hugely important when it comes to climate change mitigation and adaptation. We're talking about whole farm, comprehensive, advanced stewardship, really getting at the soil health goals that we need to achieve. Um, so yes, as, as you mentioned last year during the Farm Bill debate, um, the House bill proposed to eliminate the program entirely. Um, yeah. Just said, you know, this, this is not the right approach to conservation. Luckily, the Senate bill um, protected the program and made really important improvements when it comes to how it gets at soil health and water quality. Um, so luckily, structurally, when they, when they negotiated those two different bills, the conservation stewardship program was protected. It was included in a final bill, and a lot of those important policy changes were also included. Um, uh-huh. as, as you mentioned, we did see some definitely some significant funding cuts to CSP. Ultimately, those those cuts, because of how the Farm Bill um, funding and budget process works, will be felt outside of the actual five-year window that this Farm Bill authorizes. Um, so that means that there there's a chance to actually hopefully reverse those cuts before the next Farm Bill, before um, the folks on the ground really have to kind of suffer because of the, the less funding that is available. Um, yeah. So right now, you know, NRCS is moving forward to make sure that a CSP sign-up happens this year. That announcement already went out the door. Um, there were, and they acted quickly to be able to offer some of those important policy changes for key conservation activities like cover crops, diversified crop rotations, advanced grazing. Right. Um, so I think that there's definitely a need. There's definitely interest from producers. Um, it will for sure be an uphill challenging battle to, to protect that funding. Um, but we're, I think, in a, in a good place in terms of the immediate future and moving forward with implementation for the next couple of years. Well, that's encouraging. Um, so when we talk about like uh, when we talk about the strategies like, you know, cover crops and whatnot, you know, can you can you sort of describe those more, um, you know, what kind of programs or incentives or funding were, you know, witnesses advocating for besides, say, cover crops? I mean, is there, you know, like, I don't know, water 
quality or water uh, irrigation. Pro- I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm looking for the you know besides the cover crop, which sure. seems to be sort of everybody's favorite. But what else is there? <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of different, I think, innovative strategies that are starting to be discussed. Of course, you know, diversified crop rotations that are getting more cover on the ground, sequestering more carbon, definitely part of the solution. Um, There's some good conversations happening on what is the role of of grazing and livestock, right? Often Mm -hmm. folks are jumping to the conclusion of a climate strategy for agriculture means that no more more hamburgers, no more ice cream. Um, But I think that we see a lot of innovative ways through management-intensive rotational grazing um, that these livestock systems can absolutely be part of the solution as well um, to improve that soil health, improve that forage quality. Um, So that's kind of on the management side of things. I think there's also a a broad recognition that... um, we need to to look at kind of the the structure of crop insurance and commodity programs as well. How can we better align kind of these major pieces of the farm safety net with um, conservation and climate goals? We took some some important steps forward in the 2018 Farm Bill, but I think there, there's a lot more work to be done as well. Um, as you mentioned, you know, the, the co-benefits, too, of practices that improve soil health and benefit water quality, definitely part of the solution. Um, and, of course, when we think about adaptation the, and we think about folks in the West, um, drought is a, is a very real and immediate concern. So looking at irrigation management strategies that really allow folks to, to adapt um, to store more water in that soil um, a lot of a lot of innovative ways to to look for that as well. Um, the the hearing def also included some conversations around carbon markets. So are we starting to to think about and talk about what are solutions where we are directly paying farmers for the carbon that they are sequestering and storing um, in the soil? I think there's for sure a lot more work to be done there, but that was part of the the conversations as well. That's a really interesting concept. We're going to take a quick break right now for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back in just a minute with Alyssa Charney from the uh, National S- uh, Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. So stay tuned. We're going to talk more about Congress and accepting the reality of climate change on agriculture. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. 
And we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're talking about agriculture and climate crisis. Um, one of the things I noticed, Alyssa, uh, in the the blog on uh, this subject in on your website, on the NSAC website, is, is uh, something about how uh, data and metrics related, or, or, or I guess my question is, is how will uh, better data and better metrics related to carbon sequestration convince the Congress to allocate more funding towards programs that would track those numbers? In other words, those, those, that data helps farmers, correct me if I'm wrong, it helps farmers to understand how much carbon and water they're able to sequester through various types of crop rotations or various types of crops in general that they're planting. Is that the idea behind that idea? The 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 idea of data metrics being uh, funded more fully. Yeah, absolutely. Um, data and metrics are absolutely a big part of um, what is needed to to be able to achieve these goals. You know, right now when we talk about Farm bill conservation programs, we can talk about them in terms of acres, we can talk in terms of dollars, in terms of contracts, but we can't say, you know, as a result of this specific program, we sequestered right. this many tons of carbon. Um, we, you know, same problem when it comes to nutrients making their way into our water. So we definitely um, need and want to see better data that we think makes sense for, for a lot of reasons. Um, being able to, of course, measure what are those conservation outcomes. Um, but it also makes good sense for, for taxpayers, right? We want to be able to, sure. to justify that taxpayer investment in these conservation activities. And it makes sense for the farmer, too. The, the farmers want to be able to adopt the, the practices and solutions that are the, the most effective and impactful, both for those conservation goals as well as for their bottom line. So so this data is hugely important. Um, and then, you know, as we start thinking about what do markets and payment structures look like, of course, you, you're going to need that data if you're looking to be able to, to make payments based on actual outcomes. Um, so again, I think some some important steps were were made in the most recent farm bill around that data, um, but there's a there's a lot more work to be done, and it was good to to hear that point coming up in in the conversations. Yeah, most definitely. Now, let me ask you, how, how much does that relate to uh, rural uh, broadband access? Like, if farmers don't have access to the internet on a regular and you know cheap basis. Does that have an impact on how they are able to measure and report this data or access the metrics of other farmers so that they can emulate their practices, for example, or not? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think obviously definitely a a case-by-case basis in terms of what that data collection would look like. But of course, when we're thinking about access to getting online and being able to report that data and be in touch with your local NRCS office, um, online, that that definitely is a is a factor for sure. Yeah, I would think so. Um, you know, another place where they keep talking and have been talking literally all these. I mean, the ten years I've been doing this, people have been wringing their hands over broadband access for the rural communities in the Midwest, and I don't see that much has really changed about that. So that that seems to be something that um, yeah, is kind absolutely. of an, an evergreen issue, as they say. Um, <laughs> when we talk about funding things like the cover crops. I've read a lot about uh, cover cropping, actually, and um, there are lots of sort of wrinkles that people don't uh, recognize about 
um, the problems that arise from actually using cover crops, one of which being um, sort of the timing of the cover crop and, and the growing season and how, uh, you know, how that has an impact on the actual crop you want to sell, you know. So um, what kind of funding were they talking? Did you hear any numbers uh, for funding um, farmers to encourage them to use cover crops? I mean, which obviously they cost extra for seed, extra for fuel, extra for labor, you know, I don't think people think so much about that. They think, oh, yeah, it's really easy. Just, you know, throw a few more seeds in the ground and everything's going to be OK. That's not really true. So did you hear numbers about how much money might be required to allow farmers to pursue that cover cropping yeah. concept? Yeah, I think it's, you know, definitely a case by case, region by region um, determination of what is that amount. But I think the the factors and considerations that that you bring up are are definitely real. Um, You know, thinking about those costs, thinking about the the foregone income of, you know, what what does it take to initially adopt cover crops on those acreage? Um, So... I think that that was one of the improvements that that we were excited about in the farm bill was some direction to to increase those payment rates to not only reflect the investment on the part of the farmer, but also um, the expected benefits that that we know those systems can provide. So I think just given where they where they are at this point in the conversation in these hearings and discussions in Congress, um, they are not to the point of actually putting out a robust proposal with numbers and specifics. But I think that that all of those considerations in terms of the the re- very real investment and how do we truly incentivize adoption of these practices um, will absolutely need to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like it's a non-starter unless you start with that. I mean, it's just if you don't give farmers what they need to pursue these policies, which many farmers, according to your blog, are anxious to pursue, but it's just not realistic to think that they're going to spend, you know, uh, any percentage of their tiny margin in order to, um, you know, give everybody a feel-good moment. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really, it's so hard to sort of get all of these pieces of the puzzle uh, lined up so that they work. I wanted to ask another question about this, um, which I thought is kind of, you know, we're losing farms really fast in this country, whether it's dairy or any other type. And most uh, of the programs for farmers in the Farm Bill tend to benefit large agribusinesses like a Cargill or an Archer Daniel Midland or something like that, um, or big meat companies. But I mean, since they need the grain, I guess we should just stay with the grain companies. But what was your sense in this he- in observing these hearings about what kind of money would go to small or medium-sized farms? Like, you know, a lot of times these guys just don't seem to be able to muscle in on the on the on the pie. And um, did you get a sense that there was uh, support uh, for uh, additional funding, perhaps for uh, those small or medium sized entities? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, this almost very question came up at the select committee hearing, the question on, you know, who who do you envision to, to be part of this solution? Does it include the, the small and mid-sized um, farmers? And, and Matt, the, the witness's answer to that question was absolutely yes, a resounding yes. Um, you know, the, this this challenge is going to require all types of agriculture, all sizes. Um, Matt has been doing a lot of work in Iowa, having um, conversations, meeting in church basements with farmers who really um, range completely from 
small, have a couple of acres in vegetable production to thousands of acres in in grain. Um, and so I think what what we are hearing and seeing um, is that you know the the folks who want to be part of this solution, who recognize the challenges, um, the climate changes does not uh, discriminate based on the the type of grower that you are. Um, all of these folks are are feeling these effects. Um, and in terms of ensuring that the the solutions and the the programs and policies work for all of those folks, you know that's 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 the the work that NSAC has has been doing to try and uh, level the playing field to make sure farm bill programs are working for small, mid-sized, sustainable, and organic producers. Um, we do this both by looking at kind of the existing toolbox and saying, okay, how can we make tweaks or changes to make sure this program is relevant for this type of producer, um, and also by creating new programs that are targeted specifically for beginning organic, sustainable, um, socially disadvantaged producers. So I think there's there's opportunities, there's definitely need, um, but there's also recognition that the 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 size of the crisis is is going to require um, all sizes of farmers and ranchers to be part of the solution. Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, much as I, I deplore the sort of monocropping thing, that's what's happening in the Midwest. And I think of a guy who has like, ten, you know, 5,000 acres of wheat or 5,000 acres of soy or corn. And, you know, the idea of buying enough seed and doing the whole cover crop thing there, you know, and those prices are in the toilet. Oh, my God. You know, it's like mm, really such an incredibly complex problem. Um, yeah. One thing I, I did want to um, discuss was the uh, the disaster relief bill, which still has not been signed, to my knowledge. Maybe they're going to do it this week. I don't know. But, I think today, um, today is the day they're going to try it. Oh, is today the day? <laughs> I mean, are, do you think they'll sign it? Do you think it will pass? Or will there be another nitwit like Thomas Massey who holds it up for no, you know, <laughs> no really legitimate reason? Yeah, now that the House is is back from from recess and they are all here to vote, um, it is expected that when they bring it to the floor, it will pass with with strong bipartisan support um, as it as it did in the Senate before recess. Um, and right. from there, would head to the president to sign. He has um, committed, said that he he plans to sign it. So hopefully, hopefully that that aid and assistance can can start getting to folks immediately um, for all those folks who have have been waiting after the the disasters this year. Oh yeah, I mean, just I mean, anybody who's been following this, it's just I, you know, I mean, I think a lot of farmers are just considering now not even planting their crops. Um, because the ground is still so wet, and I think mm-hmm. they're anticipating more rain, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But anyway, let us let me ask you this, Alyssa. You look at Congress a lot, right? You guys work in Congress. How much, as a whole, do you think Congress understands what is actually going on with climate change and agriculture? Are they, as a body, better informed? Or is it, you know, are the people who are, you know, like the the select committee on climate crisis i mean are they the only ones in there that seem to understand this because there's still a lot of states that have very backward politicians uh who do not accept the realities of this you know of these impacts so do you feel like congress is going to come together and actually do something in a fairly expeditious manner say in the next year in terms of developing funding mechanisms for all these programs we've been talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the fact that these hearings are taking place is definitely a good sign that the the very real and immediate challenge related to climate change and agriculture um, is 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 on folks' radar. Um, but I think absolutely there's more education and work to be done. Um, I think that that folks in the agriculture space on the agriculture committees are are aware of the the challenges that that folks are up against when it comes to um, disasters and extreme weather and the frequency and and all that they're facing um, yeah. I think especially but I think for from for members of Congress who maybe aren't in those districts where agriculture is not a big part of their work. I think there, right. there's, there's more education and understanding to, to be done. I, I know that the select committee um, does have field hearings planned um, and, and they do want to incorporate agriculture into kind of that, that learning and understanding and educational process, which I think is important, especially for, for members who maybe aren't, um, that's not something that they're working with with their constituents every day. Um, so I think I think the conversation is is starting. There's a lot more work to be done, um, especially given the the urgency. I, I do think you know over the next year we will start to see proposals be put out there in terms of kind of really mapping out. Okay, what would a policy solution of incentives and support for agriculture to be part of the solution look like. Um, I, I think we, we are and will continue to see those types of proposals. I think in terms of the actual, you know, feasibility of getting those proposals passed and signed into law, um, what that timeline looks like remains to be seen. You know, we've, we've got a, a lot of, um, back and forth and challenges, especially between the House and the White House. We've got an election year coming up. Um, yeah. So I think that there are a lot of dynamics that, that will continue to, to make that challenging. Um, but I think that what what we see as the opportunity and the need right now is to be having these conversations, to be incorporating that feedback and to, to be fleshing out what are the policy solutions that we need to, to see when it comes to climate change and agriculture. Um, we will keep knocking on uh, folks' doors in Congress to make sure that they're stepping up to, to take action. But of course, a, a lot of challenging dynamics to, to push through as this process moves forward. Yeah, no question about that. <clears throat> so besides, let's talk for a second about what the programs um, either that, that exist or do not yet exist would most benefit the community as a whole. Would it be, I mean, how, how, how do you see them writing a policy that would, um, you know, truly have an impact on how farming operates in this country? What yeah. would you, what would, if yeah. you could wave your wand, Alyssa? <laughs> Um, you know, well, I think that the House hearing focused on resiliency really offers a, an important framework and a starting point. I think that when we think about it from that perspective, there, there's a whole lot that falls into that bucket in terms of what are the policies and programs um, that farmers need. I, I don't think we need to completely reinvent the wheel, right? We, we do have programs and tools that were authorized in the farm bill. We probably need, or we, we do need to scale those up. We probably, we need to make tweaks to better target funds. Um, but I think when we think about what are the solutions that should be part of kind of an overall package, um, we're definitely thinking about incentives for conservation, for stewardship, and, and we need further investment in that area. 
Um, we also need to be thinking about the, the research side of things, right? If we want to really move the needle on what are the tools and practices and strategies available to farmers, um, we need an even stronger understanding of how all of these processes work for different types of operations for sustainable growers. Um, what does that look like? I think there, there's also absolutely a, a role for um, kind of regional food system infrastructure. We're talking about resilient communities. We're talking about how do we have different streams of, of income when folks are up against trade wars and disasters. Um, so I think that's a part of the solution as well. Um, and then again, looking at kind of the the structure of crop insurance and commodity programs and conservation compliance, how do we further incorporate um, conservation and climate goals into this overarching structure? Um, yes. there, there's opportunity there as well. But again, you know, I, I don't think we're talking about reinventing the wheel. We're talking about how do we scale up the, the tools, the innovation, the work that we know farmers are already doing, but, but get it to a point where agriculture can truly be part of a solution um, and then I think there, you know, as we've talked about, definitely interest in um, further expanding, thinking about carbon markets, thinking about what is the role of USDA to, to play as these conversations move forward. So I think, you know, it's it's an exciting spot to be in and that there's a lot of possibility, a lot of opportunity. Um, and now is really the, the chance to, to dig in, to flesh out, to build upon um, the existing tools and programs that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought it was very encouraging that for the first time in my memory, uh, candidates are actually talking with farmers going out to the Midwest and offering, you know, sort of interesting proposals uh, for moving all of those ideas forward. So, um, you know, I, I think if we manage to secure the presidency, we, if uh, America manages to secure the presidency out from under the man in charge now, uh, we might have as before, <laughs> unless we've completely blown ourselves up by then. Um, yeah, we might have a chance. Anyway, uh, this is your moment to promote your organization shamelessly. Um, tell people again what the website is and how they can sign up and learn more and get involved or whatever. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we are at sustainableagriculture.net. There you can check out our blog. You can sign up for our weekly roundup, which will tell you all of the events and happenings and what went on in the week um, and get more information on the on the details of a lot of the, the programs and policies that, that we're talking about today. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alyssa. You were really a great guest. I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot from you. Yeah, um, thanks so much that's for it. Me. That's it for uh, this week. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks to my sponsor and thanks to my wonderful engineer, Matt. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.